All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64, and then we're going to continue our study of Luke chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 46. Isaiah 64 and Luke chapter 1. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever been given a really important task that you felt unqualified for? All right, let me ask that again. Have you ever been given a really important task that you felt unqualified for? Some of you are like, that is this city, right? That is living here in D.C. Uh, on just about every level. You feel unqualified for what you've been called to, and uh, um, here's the deal. If you've had that feeling or those feelings before, um, you understand it's sometimes uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's feeling like you're not good enough. It's sometimes it's feeling like you're, you don't measure up. Sometimes it's feeling like, surely there was someone smarter for this than me, right? Surely there's somebody uh, who checked the boxes better uh, than I did. I can tell you that uh, I felt that way on every end of the spectrum, but never so much as when we had our first child, all right? Uh, for any of you parents in this room, you understand uh, that they would just give you a baby to take home is dumbfounding, you know what I mean? that uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's obviously scripture is the instruction manual, but just so many things you're just like, I don't know what to do. I remember feeling like I was going to break Lulu when they gave her to, she was a zero percentile and so small term, and she was still uh, five pounds and 11 ounces, just so, so little. She's still a zero percentile, uh, even now as, a tw- as, a, as an 11, almost 12 year old. And so I'm telling you, just so small and just uh, so precious. And I remember just thinking, I don't feel qualified to take her home. And it all started with this moment. So um, they wanted to induce, because Lulu was so small, they wanted to induce, and so they put Autumn on a deal called Pitocin. It was the Pitocin drip to get her ready to to have the baby. And so uh, sure enough, we're in the hospital, Pitocin drip starts, and Autumn's on it for like 24 hours, and nothing is happening. And every couple hours, they send a nurse in to check. And uh, so sure enough, nurse comes in (coughs) right before Lulu's born, and the nurse says... "Um, Oh, she goes, oh, she goes, it's just about time. And then she whispers in my ear, hold her legs together or you'll have a baby in the bed. And she says it in just that tone of voice. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord. I mean, it was one of those moments where it was like, I don't feel qualified for this. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't feel like, I feel like there should be a medical professional in here, you know, and not just me holding my wife's legs together. And then I thought, I don't need to tell Autumn that because that will probably scare her that I am the only one standing between her and a baby in the bed. And so all that to say, about 10 minutes pass of just sheer terror. And then sure enough, doctor comes in, we have the baby, and the rest is history. The other moment where we felt deeply unqualified is when we had to put the car seat, put the baby in the car seat, and the car seat in the car. I mean, when you're driving, it's just you and a friend. I mean, you got one hand on the steering wheel, you know what I mean? You got to make sure that you're buckled. I'm telling you, this time it was, everything was set. My driver's ed teacher would have been so happy. I was 10 and 2, you know, doing every check, making sure it was the best best half mile I've ever driven, all right? And so all that to say, I'm just telling you, you have this attitude of, Lord, why me? Why this moment? I don't feel qualified to be a parent, and yet God bestowed that incredible blessing upon us. Um, When it comes to those why me moments, sometimes we can self-deprecate and consider it to be humility. Self-deprecation is not humility. Self-deprecation is believing that God has made you inferior, and that's not the case. We are not inferior. We are just dust that God has formed into something useful. There's a huge difference in the concepts, and I want to portray that to you today through Isaiah uh, Isaiah 64, verse 8. Look at this. If you're a person who struggles with self-deprecation, or let's just be honest, maybe you struggle with overconfidence. You're Ricky Bobby, all right, from 
from Talladega Nights, right? You struggle with overconfidence. Whether you fall on either end of the spectrum, this verse is for you. Are you ready? Isaiah 64, 8. It says, yet, O Lord, you are our father. Look at this. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Now stop right there for just a minute. Two things here that are pitched. First is we are clay. We are clay means, specifically, if you want to write this down, you can. We are nothing on our own. By ourselves, we are clay. But the reason self-deprecation is not humility is because of the second part of that verse. We are the clay, but you are the potter. The potter means that God has shaped us to be something useful. True humility is understanding. Without God, I am just dust. But in his hand, I can be formed into something useful. I love that the picture here is not we are the clay and you are the sculptor sculpting us into a beautiful beautiful marble image. No, the picture is a pot, something that will be useful, something on the shelf that can be taken down at different points and used for the will of the master. That is true humility. We are clay. We are nothing on our own, but God the potter has shaped us to be useful. If you're taking notes, write this down. Trade the fear of inadequacy and overconfidence in your abilities for genuine Christ-centered humility. Trade fear of inadequacy and overconfidence in your abilities for genuine Christ-centered humility. For some of you, you lean heavy one side and the other. We are clay, and without the hand of Almighty God, there is nothing good. We cannot form ourselves into something useful. But in the hand of the potter, he is the potter. And I love where it says, we are all the work of your hand. If there is breath in your lungs, God has fashioned your life. What a beautiful thing for us to remember. You have this experience preaching. And uh, for me, especially here, I'm getting older, uh, but I was 33 when we started Waterfront Church. And uh, I guess I was, I was 32 when we moved here and then 33. Uh, the church started on August the 10th and then I turned 33 on August the 20th. That's my birthday. So just before my birthday, we started the church. And I got this for the longest time because I look so young. As the church began to grow and as people began to recognize the name more and more, what's everybody ask you when you meet them in this city? What's your name? Where are you from? And what do you do, right? Everywhere you go, those are the three questions you get asked here. And so they'd say, what's your name? I'd say Zach Randall's. Where are you from? Lubbock, Texas originally, but now we live here in Washington. Oh, and what do you do? And I would say, well... I work as the pastor. We founded a church called Waterfront Church. And every time, I mean, every time they would go, the head pastor, that's what they would always say, the head pastor. And it was semi-insulting, right? Uh, but the idea was you look too young and Waterfront Church is well known. Surely you who dress in jeans every day, wearing tennis shoes or not expensive shoes. And then, um, I mean, just a little too much information for you. I, I wear usually a, a sports polo untucked. I have freakishly small arms. And so it's the reason I wear these little short shirts here like this. And so it's an optical illusion that I don't have little Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. And so just the way, it's the reason I dress like this. And so all that to say, it's, it's a nice way to dress. But a lot of people, when they meet me, it's, it's unassuming. All right. Uh, but at the same, some of you are like, I can see it in your eyes, your feet. You're like, he does have freakishly small arms. All right. I do see they just kind of flop around like this. I'm kind of, I know it's weird, isn't it? I kind of look like a chicken. You know, I got these little eggs. And anyway, all that to say. So side note. So here's, so here's the deal. People meet you and they go, really? That's who God sent to plant a church in Washington? 
It's a lot of what I hear. And a lot of times it causes me to go into this little hole where I'm like, I don't feel worthy, God. I don't feel worthy of this incredible vision that you gave. I don't feel worthy to get to stand in front of these people and to preach. And yet, God gave me a voice. He fashioned me a useful pot. And because of that, I get to be used for his glory. Now listen, that story is not just indigenous to me. I know there are so many of you that feel the same way, that God has given you awesome, incredible responsibility, even not just in the city, but in the family situation that you navigate. For some of you, I'm telling you, you sit there and you go, God, why me? Why me? This is such an important task. Why would you choose me to be the ones that was your hands, to be the, the, the point of being your hands and feet to the situation? There is no better illustration of that question in scripture than what Mary had to say. Mary is the one that the Lord chose, not just of anybody in Nazareth at that time. He chose Mary out of any woman in the history of mankind. He chose her to be the one to bring about the Christ child, Jesus. So it begs the question. We're going to read through her story today. You ready? Our big million dollar question. Why would God choose me for something so important? Why would God choose me for something so important? Now flip over to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 46 through 56. And as we go through these verses, this is so interesting. A lot of you have heard the story of Mary and the angel, and you've heard the story of, of John the Baptist's birth with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you've heard the story of, 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 of uh, uh, Joseph and Mary and their travel to Bethlehem. But here's what's interesting. Smack in the middle of this is a beautiful song that Mary, that Mary speaks, that she, uh, uh, that she speaks into being. And this is a beautiful insight into what this woman was thinking, uh, being given this incredible gift and this incredible task. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 49. You ready? Here's what it says. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. Underline and highlight my soul glorifies the Lord. Some of you uh, have the word magnifies there. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify and glorify are beautiful words there because the idea is when we are next to the greatness of God through the lens of our lives, his glory is magnified. His glory is made even greater when it's put right next to us. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Look at this. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Underline, all generations will call me blessed. Look at this. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now stop there for just a minute. You got to read this with the right tone. This is not her looking and going, well, because of me me, all generations will be blessed. Notice the humility at the top and the humility at the bottom. This is not her going, all generations are going to be blessed because of me. She is saying, I can't believe this. All generations are going to be blessed because of what God has done for me. The humility in the statement of Mary is undeniable. She says, Lord, my soul magnifies you. When I'm next to you, when they see that the blessing was bestowed upon me, there's nothing I ever could have done. I am but dust in your presence, but in the hands of the potter, I've been formed into something useful for all generations. Amen? That's humility. If you've ever worked with Photoshop before, okay, 
And by the way, um, we're going to talk about these at the end, but uh, the end of year reports this year, my wife did these. The church has grown so much, it's 28 pages this year uh, in the brochure that you get to see so, many great, uh, so much great information. But I want to just point this out. If you've ever done Photoshop before, if you want the main theme to come across, you make sure that whatever the backdrop is for that theme doesn't distract from what you're trying to tell. So that's the reason why we have the white letters, Waterfront Church, and then the tan letters, end of your report. But when my wife was putting together this, instead of just dragging the picture all the way to the bottom, you Photoshop whizzes no, what do you do? You add a dark bar there, and you turn the letters from a tan color to white to make sure they don't miss the messaging. You ever seen a very poorly made publication where it goes all the way to the bottom, but you miss the wording because maybe they use white letters on a very, very bright picture, or they use black letters on a dark picture, and because of that, it blends in together. This is the picture of my soul magnifies the Lord. Our life is the blue bar, and the word of Almighty God, the works of his hands are made so clear when his message is placed against the backdrop of our lives. Now, it doesn't mean you're nothing. In the hands of Almighty God, we are but dust on our own. But in the hands of the potter, we are made useful. If you get one over the other, then you end up missing what true humility is. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. If you're taking notes, uh, by the way, uh, why would God choose me for something important? Number one, because my soul glorifies the Lord. Because my soul glorifies the Lord. When placed against the backdrop of my life, God's handiwork is made visible. It is magnified like never before. No greater example of that in Scripture, I think, than the story of David and Goliath. David is the ultimate, my soul magnifies the Lord. It says that he's short in stature. He's just a kid when he shows up at the battlefield. And you've got to kind of understand the way that this thing has come together. When David and Goliath are fighting, the Philistines and the Israelites are basically on the high ground, and then in between them is something called a wadi. It's like a creek. And because of that, over the period of 40 days, it would have rained at some point during that time and caused there to be mud in that creek. And so here's what happens. Philistines are at an impasse. Israelites are at an impasse. And neither one wants to give up the high ground. So they're all yelling at each other, trying to goad one another into stepping down into the mud so then they can shoot them with arrows or hit them with spears and then kill them from the high ground. So because of that, they're stuck at an impasse. So finally, it says a champion Goliath walks out and goes, hey, who will stand against me? What they're trying to do is tick one another off so that somebody climbs down and gives up the high ground. That's what's going to happen in this moment. So Goliath comes down, big and strong, head not just a head taller, but it says in Scripture, nine and a half feet tall is how big Goliath is. Saul is the biggest man in Israel. He's probably six foot one in a world of five foot one people. And so, man, here he is. Saul's the biggest guy in Israel, and he's still more than three feet shorter than Goliath. So guess what happens? Goliath hurls insults about God. When he does that, do you remember the story? David has come to bring lunch to his big brothers. He comes in, and David as a kid is a head shorter than every man in Israel. Goliath, nine and a half feet tall. Saul, six foot one. Average man in Israel is five foot one. David's probably four foot one when he shows up in that story. All of a sudden, David goes, man, that guy's talking trash about our God. Somebody should teach him a lesson. 
every soldier around is going, dude, you don't understand military tactics. He's just trying to get us to give up the high ground, all right? He can say whatever he wants. We can't fall for it. But David hears it different. David goes, why would we let someone trash our God in that way? He has incited the wrath of, the, or the wrath of God in what he's been saying. Well, finally, David says, I'm going to do something about it. And do you remember? All of a sudden, David goes to Saul says, I want to go and fight him. And Saul goes, well, I'm not going to send you out there to fight him in nothing. He goes, maybe it'll cause those Philistines to climb down into the wadi and then we can kill them. But David, I mean, Saul knows it's a suicide mission for David unless God intervenes. So Saul goes, how about I give you my armor? And you remember six foot one armor on four foot one kid. And he puts the armor on, tries to pick up the sword and the spear. And he goes, Saul, I can't do it. I'm not built for this moment. I can't wear your armor in the battle. It doesn't fit me. It doesn't work. And not only that, I'm not even taking your sword and spear. I'm going to take a sling and a stone like I use in the field. Y'all know the end of the story. David takes down the giant. Listen, the Lord wouldn't even let him wear the king's armor going into battle. It would have given glory to David over glory to God. So what does he do? He walks out. No sword and spear, sling and stone. No armor, just a shepherd boy clothes. Man, in fact, not nine and a half feet tall, not six foot one, but four foot one, a little kid's strength. And that's what God uses. Here's the picture. We are the clay and he is the potter. On the backdrop of our life, God is magnified. His strength is made perfect in weakness, Paul says. And Mary, she affirms that principle so powerfully. If you're taking notes, write this down. The greatness of God is magnified and obvious when positioned near the humble. The greatness of God is magnified and obvious when positioned near the humble. Save your spot there in Luke 1, and let's read Paul's words on the subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I've read you these verses before, but they're so good on this issue. Here's what Paul has to say. And by the way, flip over to 1 Corinthians 1. In verse 26, it's so interesting. If there was ever a church that made Paul insecure, it was the church at Corinth. Do you remember? They were the church that raised up Apollos. And because of that, Paul comes, or they were the church that had Apollos as their pastor. Paul comes in, founds the church. It's miraculous in the way it comes together. But the church likes Apollos' preaching more than they, like, than they like the apostle Paul's preaching. And Paul loves Apollos, but he feels very inferior every time he walks through the doors of that church. So what happens? He shows up and here's what he says about everybody. He says, look at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble uh, of, by birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God and is our right righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says here in the midst of feeling insecure in front of this group, you realize that all of us are just dust, but we are dust in the hands of the potter. We are dust in the hands of the one that makes us useful, that forms us into something after his will. He begs the question, do you magnify the Lord through courageous humility? Do you magnify the Lord through courageous humility? 
Do you have the understanding? Without him, I can do nothing on my own. A pot can't form itself. But in his hand, I'm not just dust anymore. In his hand, I am useful. We get so caught up in the extremes. I've got to be more than just dust. Without Christ, we are nothing. Well, if I am nothing, then could God ever use me? Yes, because he is the potter. He has shaped you and formed you to be useful. Don't get caught in the extremes. Remember, we are the clay. We are nothing on our own. But he is the potter. He has shaped us to be useful. Now flip back over to Luke 1. And let's look at verse 50. After Mary prays that beautiful prayer, here's what she says next. She says, his mercy extends to those who fear him. Look at this. From what? From generation to generation. Remember, she's used that word generation in verse 48. Uh, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Me, Mary, of all people, they will call me blessed because of what's happened. And then all of a sudden she turns around and says, but God's mercy is not just indigenous to me. God's mercy is not just bestowed upon me. His mercy has been evident evident in the past and it will be evident in the future as well. From generation to generation, he extends mercy to those who fear him. Verse 51, watch the back and forth. It says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. I love that arm there is singular, not by the works of his hands, but she says basically, with one arm tied behind his back, the Lord has done all these amazing things without even the full extent of his power. We are experiencing his greatness. Look at this. And he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but he's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as our fathers, even as he said to our fathers. You watch this and it's so interesting. She talks about the hand of God versus the proud. She talks about lifting up the humble versus bringing down the ones who are in charge, the rulers. She talks about feeding the hungry while the rich are sent away empty. The picture that we have here is the dichotomy that God can do whatever he wants and listen. And the greatest that we have to offer is still just dust in his presence. That's not something that should depress you. It's something that should empower you, clarify your view of Almighty God. That we are but dust without him, but in his hand we are made useful, we are given purpose, and we are right where we need to be. There is a type of person that when they hear this, they go, well, then we're all nothing. The verse is not that we're all nothing. The verse is we are nothing apart from Christ. Without him, we can do no good thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Why would God choose me for something so important? Number one, because my soul glorifies or magnifies the Lord. And number two, because no one is truly worthy apart from Christ. Because no one is truly worthy apart from Christ. If you are the type of person that says repeatedly, Lord, why didn't you choose someone else for this? Why didn't you give this challenge to someone else who was more qualified? You have to remember, none of us is qualified. None of us. We're all just dust apart from him. And that should fill you with great strength to know that God has chosen you for such a time as this, for the task that you've been called to. 
you're taking notes, write this down. This is kind of a long one. You ready? Know the difference between being positioned to fulfill your life's purpose and earning a place in God's plan. We can earn nothing on our own. Say that again. Know the difference between being positioned to fulfill your life's purpose and earning a place in God's plan. We can earn nothing on our own. <laughs> this is illustrated very well uh, by a movie called Ten Commandments. You ever seen the Ten Commandments before? The one with Charlton Heston back in the day. Um, I always watch it on uh, the Saturday before Easter. I don't know why. I think because they put it on. They put it on, you know, TV. And so I just started that as a tradition and um, just started watching it. And I love it because Charlton Heston has that deep billowing voice. I mean, just so overly dramatic in it as well, which I also love. And so it's just a lot of fun. Well, here's the deal. You got to know with Ten Commandments, a lot of it is founded in Scripture. A lot of it is still creative license. And so uh, the, the, theme is, the theme is good, uh, and I would say that it's a biblically accurate movie, but it is not infallible. And so um, one of the things that they add to show the temptation of Moses is a relationship that he has in the movie with a woman named Nefertiri. And Nefertiri has been promised to whoever it is that's Pharaoh. We have no, uh, we have no uh, biblical evidence that Moses was going to be Pharaoh. All right, that's, that's, that's very, very creative license. But um, in the story... Um, Nefertiri is meant to be just the temptations of this world. And so there's a scene where Moses has come back from the wilderness. He's asked Pharaoh to let his people go. And Nefertiri arranges a private meeting with just her and Moses. And in the room, she says, you're still the same man that you used to be. And you watch it. Charlton Heston, of course, is trying to dodge all of her advances. And you watch it. He's just fighting back and forth. And she says to him at the end, she says, the, uh, the slaves in Egypt will go through me, Moses. She he says, I have the power to either turn Pharaoh's heart or to harden it. And you watch it again. She's placed her, herself in the place of Almighty God, that she is the one who decides what is useful and what's not. And then Charlton Heston says one of my favorite lines from the whole movie. He looks at her and says, you may be the lovely dust through which God will work his purpose. You remember that? Just the way that only Charlton Heston can say, you may be the lovely dust through which God will work his purpose. Now listen, it's a beautiful picture. Feeling like you have all this power, like you have all this say. But the truth is, people, we is just dust. We is just dust. Now before you deprecate, we is just dust. In the hands of the potter. He has formed us to be useful. He has given us a purpose. What a beautiful thing for us to remember. Dust on our own. But useful in the hands of Almighty God. Apart from Christ. We're just dust. By the way. Jesus himself illustrates this point. Save your spot there in Luke 1. And flip over to John chapter 3. John 3.16 is easily the most famous verse in all of scripture. Sometimes we miss the verses that are on the other side of 16. Here's what it says, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world from the mouth of the son of God himself. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. But look at 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come for condemnation. He came to set us free. But verse 18 is so powerful. Look at what it says. Whoever believes 
believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, look at this, stands condemned already. Circle, highlight, and underline those three words. Stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Stop there for just a minute. After the powerful verses of God loved the world so much that he sent me to, to take your place, to take sin's place, he then follows up and says, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. But by the way, you stand condemned already. From the mouth of the Son of God himself, he comes in and says, I'm not here to condemn you. You are hopeless without me. Without Jesus, there is no hope. From the mouth of the Son of God himself, we have to realize because of Jesus, we have hope in a future. Without him, there is nothing. We're just dust. You can't make yourself into a pot. If you're taking notes, it addresses the question. Are you ready? Have you acknowledged that Jesus is your only hope? Have you acknowledged that Jesus is your only hope? It is the beginning of humility to realize we are but dust without him. And with him, and with him we have access to eternity. Now flip back over to Luke chapter 1 and we'll close up with our final verse. Luke chapter 1, and now let's read verse 56. After this beautiful song from Mary... It says, so Mary then stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Underline Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Remember, Elizabeth has about three months left on her pregnancy. She's six months along when Mary walks through the door. One of the things that's beautiful about this passage is both were carrying heavy weights. Mary is about to bear the Messiah, but Elizabeth, Elizabeth is about to have a child in her old age. And this is not where there's fancy hospitals with fancy equipment. She's about to have a baby in her old age, and there's not going to be some fancy hospital. She's going to have it at her home. And all of a sudden, guess what? In this circumstance, Elizabeth is nervous, and Mary has been given this incredible blessing and uses that time to realize God has also brought me here to not just bless me, but that I might be able to bless others with what's been given to me. What a beautiful thing for us to remember. Why would God choose me for this, for something so important? Number one is because my soul glorifies the Lord. Number two is because no one is truly worthy apart from Christ. And number three is so that my circle might be encouraged as well. So that my circle might be encouraged as well. For some of you, the big jump for you is to realize God has blessed me and called me to this task. Not just for me, but to stop and to look in your periphery at your family members, at your workmates, at your housemates, at the people that God's placed around you in the community. To stop and to look and go, it's not just me that God's blessing. The overflow is also spilling on to those in my life that are near me as well. Sometimes why me is with self-deprecation. Why would you choose me when there were others more qualified? Sometimes it turns into, Lord, why? Not why me, but why is this taking so long? Because of the blessing that you have, the things that you feel called to, if you're that type of person here that's go, 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 and then all of a sudden you run into a roadblock where you go, well, Lord, if you called me to this, then why is it taking so long? Then why is everybody not just moving a little bit faster? It's the feeling that you have every day in traffic, for those of you that drive, right? 
Lord, you've called me to this. I'm trying to do the good work. I'm trying to do the things you've called me to do. Why is it taking so long when it usually doesn't take this long? Can I just tell you one of the things that happened? I'm one of those who gets impatient when I'm driving. And I've had to change my mindset a little bit. After being in it for eight years, all right, you just begin to change a mindset. I wish I could tell you I do this all the time, but it's something I'm doing more often than not now. If I'm in a circumstance where I get stuck and I can truly do nothing about it, I've got to the point as a follower of Jesus Christ where I go, you know what? If God is in all things, if he truly is the potter and I'm the clay, why would he want me sitting here in traffic even right here at this moment? Why has he positioned me as one who's a Christ follower, as one who's a disciple, as one who's a pastor of a church? Why has he isolated me at this point? And is there someone I'm supposed to see? To the point that, have you ever done this before? I'll be sitting at standstill traffic on 295, and I'll stop, I'll have this realization, and then I'll begin to look inside the cars surrounding me. And can I tell you what I often see? I'll see someone in tears. You ever noticed that before? Somebody driving in their car, and they're leaving the city, and they just had such a horrible day that all of a sudden there they are crying in their car, and they're stuck on the highway, but I see them, and listen, I pray for them. I don't know their name. You don't need to like wave them down and be like, hey, you're crying. Are you okay? All right, that's not what you're called to do. But maybe just maybe I was supposed to pray for that person. Or have you seen this before? Someone on their Bluetooth and they're just screaming at somebody on the phone. Screaming at somebody. At that point, I see them. I stop and I pray. Lord, I don't know what it is they're navigating, but bring it to peace. Whatever it is that they're dealing with, bring peace to this scenario. Sometimes it'll happen when you're waiting in line somewhere to get food. Or this happens to me a lot at the post office up here. I'll be waiting in line at Southwest Station to get something. Poor group right now, especially around Christmas. They usually send one poor worker out to the front, and everybody else is feverishly trying to shuffle packages there in the back. It's so difficult. We've we've watched, because we have several of you in our congregation that work at the post office. We watch it. They bring in these huge containers out there in that lot that's next to it. And I'm telling you, it's just so many packages, and they're short-staffed. It's a tough situation. But as the consumer... You sit there and you're just like, I did not want to spend 45 minutes standing in line at the post office today, right? One day, the church was not even a year old at this point. One of my favorite waterfront stories. Um, I remember I've got my wife and kids in the car. And uh, um, at that point, Lulu's four, Jack is two, and Harper's six months old. And so they're very, very young. And I end up having to spend a really long time in the post office, about 45 minutes in the post office in line. In front of me is a man who works at DOT, and behind me is a man who worked in the legal profession. And we're waiting in line at the post office, and again, I have this realization, we're not moving, we're all sitting there, it's in complete silence, but it's been long enough that people are starting to grumble about us being in line, and you can tell it's gonna turn into every single person in line verbally beating up whoever it is that's behind the counter. And so I thought to myself, maybe the godliest thing I can do is just start natural conversation, you know, in the area around me. So we start to talk, find out what each other do, and then all of a sudden the Lord begins to just open this door. And then the way that DC works wasn't this way where I grew up. It just starts pouring rain, cats and dogs. I mean, there was just, it looked like blue skies, and all of a sudden, I mean, just this massive rainstorm comes down. Well, when we finish, 
We walk out. We're there on the little porch area there at Southwest Station, and we're staring out and going, whoa, this is crazy. Well, I said, hey, I've got my car here. I said to the guy from DOT, I said, do you need a lift back to work? And then I looked at the other guy. His name was Jack. I said, Jack, you need a lift back? And Jack goes, "Uh uh-uh, man. My mom told me not to ride in the car with strangers. He goes, I'm not going to do that. And then the other man from DOT said, I don't want to sit in rain all day long. He goes, he goes, I'll take you up on that lift. Well, we get in the car. He sees the family, and he's like, oh, you're not a serial killer. He goes, this is nice. You have a family, right? We get in the car, drive over to DOT. I want to say that he said he was, uh, we invited him to church. I want to say he said, yeah, I'm a member, I think, at McLean Bible Church. And he, goes, but, uh, he goes, but I'll pray for you. And he goes, this is really exciting, this church that y'all have started. Drop him off. And then I told Autumn, I was like, we got to go back for Jack. We got to go back for this other guy, this, this legal expert. And uh, I remember she was like, he's going to think that's so weird. She goes, you're just going to come back and try to pick him up. And I said, I just feel like we're supposed to. Let's go back and let's give it a shot. So we drive back over. Jack is still underneath the awning. And uh, I remember Autumn had gotten in the back seat. So I rolled down the passenger side window and I go, dude, are you sure you don't just want to ride and you can see it in his eyes, like, I don't know, man, I don't know. And then he sees the rain, and he goes, all right, I'll do it. And so he climbs in the car. Well, when he does, he sees this zoo of children in the back, you know, and then Autumn. And then he was like, whoa, and then again, you're not a serial killer. You have a family. And so anyway, for those of you pursuing serial killing, get a family, all right? I guess and you can do that. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on. He looks at me, and he goes, man. He goes, he goes, this is great. He goes, why are you here? And I said, I told you, we came here to plant the church. We talk about Waterfront. Come to find out uh, that one of his parents had been uh, serving at a seminary as a professor. And, uh, but he himself had not made a decision to follow Christ. And so really, really cool end of the story was he ends up coming to Waterfront. And then over across the street at the youth space when we met over there, after one of the services up in the corner, I got to pray with him to receive Christ. And it all started with that conversation at the post office, with the rain coming down, and me having the guts to drive back a second time to offer him a ride. Now listen, I wish I could tell you I said yes to God all the time whenever those situations pop up. I'm becoming more mindful as I get older. And that's what I'd like to encourage you to do as well. My soul magnifies the Lord. Apart from Christ, I'm just dust. But maybe, just maybe, the Lord has made me useful so that the blessing he's bestowed upon me will spill onto those around me and they will give praise and glory to Almighty God. Begs our statement here. Never forget that God gifts, or that the gifts and responsibilities God has given to you have a profound effect on those closest to you. Never forget that the gifts and responsibilities God has given to you have a profound effect on those closest to you. Maybe for some of you today, it's time that you started to look one circle out from your main sphere to see who it is that God is blessing. In fact, I have no doubt today, there are some of you who have a lot of time that you sit in a location and the Lord is calling you today to open your eyes to see what he sees, to see who's around you that needs help. It begs our final question today. Are you aware of how your calling is shaping others around you? Let me say that again. Are you aware of how your calling is shaping others around you? What a good challenge to close with as some of you go home to be with family. The time that you spend up here 
has a great effect on those who you are closest to back home. I want to encourage you. See them this week. Don't just be with them. See them and see what the Lord is doing in their lives and maybe just maybe have a conversation that could have eternal implications. Love you guys. Thanks for listening today. Let's bow our heads and we'll finish up.